Hey, this episode is brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. What are you sending your agents out in the field with? You know, the days of just giving them the business card and, you know, hey, say hello and shake their hand. Those days are over. It's time to give them some real marketing materials. How do you do that in a way that's cost effective? Well, when you use instantquotetool.com, we create custom proposal templates where we dynamically add all the savings information, but we also put in their marketing slicks for the hardware and software that you're selling so you can have a custom branded marketing solution that can be printed or emailed to the merchant. All right, everybody, I am here today with my good friend Hawkins Seaman, who is the CEO and founder of Elevate Payment Alliance. How's it going, Hawkins? Good. How you doing, James? I am doing great, man. It's great to, great to talk to you, and uh, how is it out there in uh, beautiful Colorado? Uh, it's starting to turn green, finally. That's so, good. I <laughs> appreciate you guys having me uh, for the podcast. Sure, absolutely. So I've got a lot of questions about kind of this, you know, transition from, you know, W-2, uh, you know, executive processor to having your own ISO and stuff. But a lot of people on the podcast sure. don't know who you are. So let's let's kind of back it up a little bit and give everybody a little background. How'd you get into the industry? How'd you end up starting uh, Elevate Payment Alliance? Well, it's a little bit of a long backstory, but I'll try to keep it in short. <laughs> sure. And, um I grew up uh, on a farm in Wisconsin and um, was kind of into snowboarding very early on before it was allowed at most of the ski resorts. And my mom had grew up in Colorado, so we visited Colorado often. Sure. And um, so, of course, as soon as I graduated from college, that's where I wanted to uh, move as quickly as I could. And Mm -hmm. my intent was to um, go pro as a snowboarder. And that didn't necessarily happen. But when I got to Colorado, I saw a listing in the local paper for a data entry job. And um, it included a ski pass and health insurance, and that was pretty much <laughs> all, you all needed. that I was looking for at the time. <laughs> so I had no idea what the company did. I had no idea what merchant services was. Sure. Um, it just came so with a ski pass. <laughs> kind of came with a ski pass. That's right. So I dove in. I started in underwriting, uh, and, of course, the company was Total Merchant Services, and it was my first job out of college, and um, ended up spending the next 18 years there. Wow. That's awesome. And um, really got a, a wealth of knowledge and it was a it was an awesome opportunity because when I started we had about 24 employees and um, of course as, as some people may know total merchant services really grew over the years yeah. and, um, towards the end there uh, we were up to about 250 employees and what was really neat about that whole experience is I got to be part of the ISO from early on sure as it developed and went through different stages and became more of a an official corporate company, and um, so there was just a, a lot of really good experience that came along with that. I also had the opportunity to work with Matt and Ed Friedman, who I have a lot of respect for, and they were sure. kind of mentors to me, and appreciate that. And uh, yeah, it was a really good, uh, a really good uh, place to start in the industry. And of course, as the years went on, I, I kind of worked my way up. I spent a, a lot of time in a lot of different areas. Early on, I was really attracted to working with the sales partners. I just liked the aspect of supporting them and helping them be successful. And so I kind of helped found their partner support team, which is kind of their relationship management aspect. And then, um, you know, in time, I started uh, working on uh, recruitment, and I led their recruitment team. And towards the end, I was the director of the ISO channel, so kind of all things that were related to the ISO and uh, really uh, enjoyed that a lot. 
So I guess you can a- you can ask for a much better experience to prepare you to start an ISO. It sounds like you did right. everything. No, right. I, <laughs> yeah. Looking back on it, no, I'm I'm extremely fortunate. <laughs> I'm very thankful for that. So sure, um, that's great. So then, what led you to uh, kind of elevate Payment Alliance? What was the uh, what was the rationale for you? I know a lot of a lot of people listening, of course, are in that position where you know they've been W two for a long time, had the security and everything, and then you know they want to make a leap. What what kind of uh, was there anything that kind of prompted you, or just kind of a long period of time of thinking it and, and just waiting for the right moment or what? Well, I think you kind of nailed it. I mean, it was really just being, um, you know, as you get into more of a leadership or executive role, you start to really kind of role play. What would I do if this were my ISO? You know, is this right. the right decision? Um, how does it affect the sales partners? How does it affect the merchants? Was it well thought through? So I just kind of, you know, started to really do that a lot. And of course, it kind of evolved into more and more uh, desire to launch my own ISO. Um, and the whole idea behind doing my own ISO is not only, of course, is it challenging and it would be a, you know, an entrepreneurship opportunity for me personally, but um, I really had the intent of kind of doing it with um, the first priority being to take care of its partners, its employees, and its merchants and really kind of essentially uh, aligning a, a win-win-win, if you will, formula for long-term success, so really taking into account all of the, um, I guess, players at the table. And um, it may sound a little cliche, but that really is the intent of the ISO, is to uh, be very aligned with, with all parties involved. So. Sure. And, I, and it's funny, too. I think every ISO, you know, if you look at that mix of – sales partner, employee, uh, and merchant, every ISO has a little bit of a different priority structure, you know, and it's not that any particular one is is right or wrong, you know, it's just, it's very different, you know, a company that's all about the merchant, um, they may, you know, allocate resources and time differently than the company that's all about the sales partner, you know, so it's, they're all interconnected, right, but it's like, it seems like it's a little bit different, and it sounds like you had kind of a really specific way you wanted to structure a a, a group. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I really wanted to try to make it balanced and, you know, especially on the sales partner front, it's something that I was very familiar with and really right. value the feedback sure. and the input from the partners and so um, there's a lot of emphasis on, on advocating for the partner. So. Well, I would love to get uh, some thoughts that you might have, challenges, uh, advice you might be willing to share, you know, again, for that person that's working at the ISO that is, you know, or even really somebody working a job at another, maybe they're working for a bank, you know, but they're but they're running the merchant services division or whatever. And so they want to make that entrepreneurial leap. Uh, any advice that you would have or challenges you'd, you'd want to share that uh, you faced during that transition? Yeah, I mean, there's there's been plenty of challenges uh, along with the upside or the rewards to it as well. But early on, it's um, I would say that for me uh, as an executive, I was uh, doing you know pretty well financially, and so I had kind of built up um, right. spending that matches that. So it was very difficult to break that trend and get to sure. a position where <laughs> I could um, yeah. you know save enough capital to to be able to not only cover my family's expenses for a year and a half, but also have capital for, um, you know, terminal purchases, bonuses, right. things like that that I'll need to, to launch the ISO. And so I, I fortunately finally came to a position where I could do that, and that was the biggest triggering point for me. Um, but then now, of course, once you launch, you learn very quickly, as I'm sure, James, you know this, but, you know, you need a lot more capital than you were expecting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> always. <laughs> <laughs> that's always how it works. So um, so that, that's definitely been a challenge is the capital aspect. And I've 
um, been fortunate enough to have, again, some really great mentors in the industry that I've really been able to call on and kind of ask for advice and get guidance around that. And sure. the main piece of advice I hear from most people is to, to really uh, try not to give up any equity position early on in, in exchange for capital and mm-hmm. really try to borrow yeah. money, especially borrow money from people that you trust or know. So that's, that's been valuable, uh, valuable advice for sure. And I think you, you know, really we should kind of dig into that for just a second. I mean, you just gave a great piece of advice very quickly that I think a lot of people might not understand, which is, you know, in this industry, I mean, a couple things you pointed out. Number one, you know, the average break even point for an ISO in today's market is probably in that 12 to 18 months, maybe even 24 months in terms of, right, right? you got to buy equipment, you got to pay bonuses, like it's expensive to get merchant accounts, right? Right, it is absolutely. So you got to have, you know, you got to have some backing, or you got to have a pretty big bank account to do it. And then I think the other thing that you said that's really valuable is, you know, don't give up equity. You know, there's lots of different ways to structure these deals to give up. Maybe you're making a slightly lower residual percentage in exchange for getting some capital or getting some upfront bonus money, or you know, different ways to structure the deal. But you give up twenty, you know, twenty five percent or forty percent of your company on day one, you're not going to get a very good price for it because because they know it's going to take a long time to break right. even as well. Mm-hmm. And by the time you break even, you've got something that's worth a ton of money, and you gave up 40% of it for really nothing. <laughs> right. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yep. that's 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 really that's really good stuff. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, how did you go about it? I mean, obviously, you know, you if you want to start an ISO, especially one that's going to grow quickly, uh, which I'm, I'm sure is what you're, you're uh, doing there, I mean, you know, I would assume you did have to get some partnerships and stuff, right? I mean, how, do you have any advice for kind of finding the right partnerships, the right acquirer, the right, you know what I mean, capital partners, whatever it is? I mean, do you have any, any thoughts on kind of finding the right people and, and how important was that to your uh, early success getting started here? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think that uh, um, we're in a highly competitive industry, and um, there's a lot of people promising a lot of great things. And so, <laughs> sure. so for me, it really, I took, I spent about six months just heavily researching um, the different uh, processors, direct relationships with the processors, super ISOs that would also provide a registered ISO program, mm-hmm. um, but you weren't direct with the processor. Right. And I talked to, as I mentioned before, a lot of a lot of people that owned ISOs or mm-hmm. um, were currently had ISOs, and just really asked around, really asked the the network of people that I know and have relationships with, and and ultimately kind of narrowed it down to the you know the top few, and and uh, really vetted out uh, what they had to offer and the the agreements that they had, and um, you know their different policies towards PCI and the way they treated merchants and. Customer service, and so it was. Yeah, it was a lengthy process to really get to what I felt was one of the best partnerships uh, available that had all the different components. And That's a big great. part of that was product mix. You mm-hmm. know, were there products that they sure, already had in place sure. that I can just kind of leverage? Um, and service uh, was huge, of course. So yeah, right, right. it was. It's a lengthy process. So. so one more one more thing I just want to point out and uh, and kind of ask a question before we get into I want to ask some specific things about Elevate Payment Alliance. But, um, you know, one thing here too, Patty, that I noticed that's so interesting to me, people always talk about entrepreneurship as, you know, you have to be this like pure entrepreneur. Right. You know, right. you had a, you had, you know, you started your first business when you were 12 and you've never worked for anybody since. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's funny, Hawkins, I actually read a book uh, maybe a couple years ago or so called The Intelligent Entrepreneur. And it was just talking about.
about how such a large percentage of actual successful entrepreneurs, they first were successful in their career as an employee. Right. You know, learning things in a structured environment, getting right. that accountability, getting that character and discipline and knowledge and network. I mean, talk about that a little bit. I mean, you know. How do you feel that that, you know, impacted? I mean, you spent 18 years working for somebody else. Um, how do you think that impacted versus if you had started an ISO, you know, uh, 13 years ago, you know, or something like that? I mean, what are your thoughts on that, on that impact? Well, one thing would happen is he wouldn't have gotten that ski pass. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that would have been a big downside right there. Right but. there. That's true. That's one big difference. I would have had to pay for my own ski pass. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously it's been huge. I, I don't even know how to you know, really break it down. Right, right. You get so much exposure to um, so many different aspects of, of how you, uh, I mean, the different processes that are involved in, in all different, uh, you know, areas of an ISO, the challenges they face, the, the challenges they face as they grow, as they change right. stages. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it's and the, you know, the relationship part, having that network to reach out to and, and bounce ideas off or the direction of where you're looking to take things off of is extremely valuable. So, yeah, it really is a huge advantage to have that background. Yeah. I would also um, think that, you know, you, you mentioned the networking, and, and it just strikes me that, you know, in a business this large, you know, uh, you know, just starting out, like if you, you know, if you come out of college, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and get into merchant services. Right. You don't know anybody. You don't know anybody. How can you? Right. How can you do that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so much about who you know, isn't it, Hawkins? It's so I. I it is. It's tough it to is. overemphasize that, and I think I think even like I think about myself when I was you know 20 years old and thought you know I'm going to set the world on fire as an entrepreneur before I'm you know 25 or something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know you're like why? Well, because I'm smart. I can right. figure it out. Uh huh. Well, you can be as smart right. as you want, but you're not the one making the rules. Well, smart and experience <laughs> are different things. They are, and 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 you know, and on top of that, I mean, there's there's people that have more influence and more power than you do in any industry Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and those are the people that are setting the rules right and so you gotta it's very rare to find a mark zuckerberg or you know larry and sergey or somebody like that that's going to start this thing right out of college usually you build the network you get the knowledge you build up the the character and the discipline and 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 the network and then you you know go do something so anyway all right good good stuff so hawkins let's switch over and let's talk about uh, elevate payment alliance so let's first talk about the merchant's perspective um what does Elevate Payment Alliance, obviously this industry is hyper competitive, you know, you have a lot of competition out there. What, how did you come about making your brand in terms of how you want to position yourself in the mind of the merchant? What's the value proposition for them? Well, it's a great question. And honestly, again, a lot of my expertise is really on the, the partner side. But so I had to think about this a lot. And, um, you know, like, like um, others in the industry, we are um, a pretty big proponent of cash discount. So that sure. idea is one of our probably, you know, major uh, selling points or approaches to merchants. Um, but we're still doing a lot of traditional um, processing as well. And, you know, we have competitive costs to work with. And so it's some of the same old kind of rate game, if you will. Sure. Um, I think the... Some of the differentiators are, for one, the service level. We don't require any type of contract or termination fee. I'm a big believer in month-to-month and kind of yep. show the merchant that you want to earn their business. Um, and, you know, a lot of our reps are very, uh, or sales partners are very experienced uh, sales partners in the industry. So a lot of them have very high-level relationships with their merchants and provide a lot of local servicing. Hmm. And 
Um, so that's good. We have a lot of different solutions, a lot of different uh, POS solutions that we've lined up. Um, and we have got a whole host, actually, of different POS solutions and then um, gateways as well. So we have a lot of different types of solutions. Um, I also wanted to make it very transparent for the merchant where there's no annual PCI fees, there's no annual regulatory fees, and the mm-hmm. monthly fees are very straightforward. And so they really understand what they're getting into, and there's not a lot of surprises. So it's a great experience for the merchant. Hmm. That's that's really interesting, and it's funny. You can even just tell just by the way you're describing it how much your organization focuses on the sales partner, right? Because it's right. like you're you're basically yeah, you have some constraints in there. Hey, our brand isn't about you know long term contracts or early termination fees or hidden fees. You know, we're not about that. But it kind of sounds like you're you're really about you know, enabling the sales partner to do uh, what they do best is, is what it sounds like. So let's let's talk about that yeah. a little bit. I mean, why why do you think? I mean, you mentioned you have experienced salespeople. I mean, they're in this industry, an experienced merchant services professional is almost harder to get than a than a merchant. Mm-hmm. Um, so how have you gone about getting them? What's the what's the pitch to them? Why are they coming to your uh, ISO? It's a great question. I mean, um, I would say. The first thing is obviously that I, I do have prior relationships, people that I've known for years. Sure. I've worked with thousands of sales partners in my career. And, right, of course. Um, you know, I've always had a real uh, transparency in the way that I operate and, and, as I mentioned earlier, real advocacy. So really, you know, sales partners face a lot of challenges with processors where the only thing the processor hears is, is complaints from merchants. They never hear the good stuff about the sales partner. Mm-hmm. So there's this, kind of this constant... Um, a battle for the sales partner's reputation, if you will. Yeah. And I really felt like I was on the sales partner's side of that. I was the advocate, and I was going to, you know, try to enlighten the organization around the pos- the positive aspects of sales partners. And so, um, so that's really the the you know, there's a lot of partners that recognize that, and know my history of of uh, uh, doing that. Um, otherwise, you know, one of the biggest differentiators that we have and um, is the idea around uh, sharing our stock. So basically, uh, this is part of the whole uh, idea of aligning the sales partner and the employee um, with the company and kind of the way that we service merchants, the way that we look at uh, the business as more of a long-term uh, focus right. and, and taking, chair, taking care of each, each party within that, that group. So. What we did is basically we set up a stock program that doesn't honestly have a whole lot of value now, but as the ISO grows mm-hmm. in time, what it means is if there were actually to be an acquisition, which is somewhat possible, say, 10 years down the road, that they would participate in, in that acquisition. And this would be outside of their portfolio sure. value. This is right. the, the value that comes from our side as the company. So. That's not. I just use it as a really good example of showing that that is our true intent of really kind of being aligned right. with it's long term. It, it's like investing in your employees so that they invest in you. Yep. Oh, yep. Patty's got her one-liners down I today. That was a good one. Yeah, <laughs> got it, man. Uh, yeah, that's no, great, I though. Just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of acquisitions in the industry where I felt like, you know, the sales partners really contributed to that success. The employees mm-hmm. really contributed to that success. And they didn't necessarily participate in that acquisition. Right. Uh, yeah, that happens so much. 
Right. Well, right. The, and the good thing, of course, is in our industry, there's very few acquisitions and mergers that happen anyway. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> We're such a dud that way. Yeah, right, aren't we? right. It's just, right. you know, boring. Right. So, um, wow, that's great. So, how, let me ask this. How do you, how do you communicate that? Because, like, obviously, okay, so you got the salesperson, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, right now in the beginning phases, you know, that stock is like not worth a ton, but, what are you doing to kind of keep everybody in, in your culture aligned with like, hey, you know, we're going somewhere. I mean, is there something you found that helps you to kind of communicate this to the salespeople and the employees that, you know, hey, our company's growing, we're increasing value? Like, how do you keep everybody engaged and excited about that? You know, that's a great question. I'm not sure that I, that I have a good answer for you. I mean, really, it's just, um, I think, just the idea of it. And a lot of people have trouble wrapping their head around it a little bit because it's not something that they're used to, and so I do have to explain mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, quite often, but uh, I think the, the basic idea that, hey, you're, you know, you're participating in this, you're part of this, that, that people understand that, yeah. and um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what we're doing. I mean, it's, for example, everything is transparent. We're passing all of our costs on to the agents. There's no markups in the Schedule A's. Sure, that's a big thing. Um, right. And, you know, all the equipment costs is, is a true pass-through, and so... There's things like that. A lot of our partners are focusing on, uh, we do what I call an 80% true revenue sharing. So they're really focused on that residual, the long-term value that they're building. So it kind of aligns us right. um, you know, with, with, with the stock idea as well. And um, that's the majority of our business. A lot of partners are, especially now with cash discount, really focused on those higher splits right, versus sure. just getting the bonuses and, and the free placement. And we can do that as well. But right. Right. Uh, a lot of our partners are, are veteran partners who recognize the value in that sure. long-term. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, and it's so interesting, too, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, I've seen so many different structures. You know, you have something really unique um, that works great for what you're trying to do, and then I'll see another ISO that starts up that has a totally different right, right, you know, structure. Right, but right. You know, but it works. It works for them because they're trying to do something. Maybe they're they're all about just providing this unbelievable experience for the merchant in a certain way or going after a mm-hmm. specific vertical. or you know. So there, I love that about our industry, that it's there's plenty of room, even though it's, it's a crowded industry, no doubt. Um, if you find like what you're really good at, and in your case, Hawkins, obviously it's the the sales partner, and, and you've always had that passion. It's like if you find that and you really lean into that and double down on your strength, it's there's usually a place for you. You can always kind of make something a little bit unique in the industry, right? Playing to your strengths, absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. yeah so, okay. So, so Hawkins, we've talked to you about your transition. We talked about the, you know, your, your ISO, which sounds exciting. Now I want to really get nitty gritty detail and talk about salespeople a little bit and get some advice because we have a lot of salespeople on, you know, listening to the podcast on a weekly basis. And, you know, you have had the opportunity to work with thousands of salespeople. Uh, and so I'm just kind of curious, uh, what have you seen over the years as you've worked with these agents that are common traits? So what do you see? the successful agent doing versus kind of mm. the average or the one that kind of drops off. Are there any, any trends or patterns that you've noticed over the years you'd share with us? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, first, I would have to say that relationships, as we've already kind of mentioned sure. a few times, I think it really comes down to the relationships. These sales partners have um, a very unique um, position because the merchant and them have, uh, most sales partners have a very well-established relationship with the merchants, and the more well-established that is, the the more valuable, um, you know, that obviously that relationship is. And so that's that's my number one thing is that uh, I think the partners that give their cell phone numbers out, even though that can be a, 
a real challenge or pain sometimes to the merchants. The ones who are there and available and very hands-on with their merchants, um, those have been by far the most successful. And there's ways to be successful without that level of relationship, but that's been the most um, common, uh, I guess, you know, common denominator in it is, is the strong relationships with the merchants. Because that's not only... Um, you know, obviously helps you, it helps you immensely in getting referrals, which mm-hmm. as in most businesses, referrals is really the key. And so those relationships drive the referrals. So that by far, in my opinion, is, is the strongest point is, is the sales partner's relationship with the merchant. And you know, isn't, uh, isn't it, uh, isn't it interesting that our industry, it seems like the bar is set so low too. It's like, you know, you say that and, you know, somebody might be thinking, oh, wow, so I need to, like, reach out to my clients once a week, you know, and send them a birthday card. And right. no, no, no. <laughs> like, in our industry, if your client has your number and you actually pick up when they call and you check in with them a couple times a year, That's you are primo. way ahead of your competition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not, not right. that difficult to stand out in that way, you know. And a great example of that is I had, uh, in fact, probably one of the most successful partners I've ever uh, worked with. Uh, they had a paper supply program. Sounds very kind of old school. and Right. Uh, but they would actually provide paper uh, for free to their merchants, mm-hmm. and they would send them out in, um, I don't remember, 10 rolls or something. So there was a frequency to it, meaning mm-hmm. that they kind of touched their merchants on a regular basis. Right. And they got so many referrals, and they were, like I said, that just that, you would be surprised how much having a, a you know a pretty frequent uh, communication with your merchant and how valuable that is. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny. I, I'm wondering this this uh, partner you're talking about. I wonder if uh, I could take some credit and they saw my video. I did exactly the same thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Talked yeah. about it all the time. Yeah, I, yeah. I did a three Maybe. month. I was did a three month supply. I was calculated. You know how much they would need for three months um, based on the number of transactions, and then I would tell them when you get to your last roll you know, shoot me a text and then I would actually drive out sometime that week and deliver the paper. And then when I was there, I'd ask him for a referral. I probably generated, I don't know, at least half my accounts that way. Wow. Cool. So absolutely, that's a great yeah, idea. That's, that's exactly a great idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. can be kind yeah. of expensive actually. Some, I had some merchants, I, there's funny, I, I have a hair salon that still today texts me whenever they run out <laughs> and it's right on my way. It's right on my way in. I could have one of my employees do it, but I'm like, you know what? It's fine. My wife still goes there to get her hair cut. So I've been providing them with like, I don't know what it is. They just go through so much paper and I've been providing them with more paper than I get in residual for like, I don't know, right. seven or eight years. Um, but I think they've given right. me, you know, 15 referrals, you know, oh, so, sweet. so it's, it's paid off there. So yeah. Yeah, cool. What you, you got any other tips you want to share with, uh, on the sales side, anything that you've kind of seen? What about like work ethic? Like, you know, have you have you noticed kind of any trend as far as the successful agents and are they treating it more like a job than a business or are they doing something with their schedule? I mean, is there anything you've kind of noticed on, on the effort side of it? Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, those that have more drive um, are more successful and it really kind of is a numbers game. It's, it's kind of a um, a contact sport is what we used to say. <laughs> yeah, you know, I like that. The more often you're reaching out and the more often you're you're building that pipeline, the, the more likely you are to close accounts. And, you know, there's a lot of a, a lot of different marketing approaches out there. And at the end of the day, it still seems like the good old tried and true knocking on doors is, is the um, 
kind of the, the lowest or the easiest method to be successful. It's hard work, but... Yeah, that, and knocking on doors more than ringing on the telephone, right? I mean... Right. It, you know, that is so much that face-to-face. It is, and it's funny, Hawkins, because, I mean, if you talk to agents, you know, it, it it's hard to explain to people that have never done it how brutal it really is. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, they're like, well, if it really is, if it works that well, why doesn't everybody do it? Go try it for a day, and you'll <laughs> mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll learn. <laughs> try, try to open your car door when you got to get out and walk into a business you've never been into before you mm-hmm. don't know anyone and you're going to try to sell them something and they have a line of people waiting to pay right you show yeah. you come out after that and tell me if you can't figure out why nobody does it because mm-hmm. it's terrifying right. that's why nobody oh, does yeah. it but it works really really well so it's like if yeah. you're willing to stand the, the torture of doing it mm-hmm. you know it's uh it really works well and again i think that, that goes to needing the thick skin right it i does. mean you really need to Sales be able to right not take not take rejection personally right right, <laughs> right. so right awesome well, other, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, the other thing I've kind of seen that goes along with that is, well, I see a lot of partners, especially newer ones, um, kind of get paralysis with over-analysis. But yes. What I mean by that mm-hmm. is they spend so much time studying every little detail yep. and making sure that they understand everything. And that's great. I, I, you know, you definitely should be continually your, your education as much as possible and be as knowledgeable as you can be in the industry, but you have to kind of balance it with actually getting out there and selling right. as well and getting that experience. Um, and I think the real, I think the real problem with that Hawkins is like, you know, and I talk about it a lot of times in my videos because it's like, you, you know, you can't absorb that much knowledge unless you put it into, into action. Right. So it, right. it doesn't, you can spend 50 hours watching my videos on YouTube if you really want to binge watch them, but that's not really going to make you a great merchant services salesperson. You know, the idea mm-hmm. is watch, you know, watch uh, three or four videos and then go sell and then watch another three right. or four. And over the course of a year, boy, you can really learn a lot, you know, if you do that. But yeah, I, I'm totally in agreement with Absolutely. you there. I've, I've seen so many people get into that paralysis state. It's mm-hmm. uh, really sad. And this, but the, the thing that is frustrating to me is they'll call me up. Up, like I've done them this huge favor. Oh, James, you know, I've watched a hundred hours of your videos and I'm like, okay. And you never sold the merchant yet? No. And I'm like, wow, I'm so sorry for ruining the last month of your month life. Of your life, right? You know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but man, Hawkins, this has been great. Just lots of uh, really, really good information for a lot of our listeners. Um, where do people go? I'm sure there's agents, you know, listening right now that want to learn more. Where would you send them to learn more about your company? Well, they can go to our website, um, which is www elevate payment without an s uh, alliance.com so elevate payment alliance.com um, they could also uh, reach me directly if they wanted to chat and that's at 949-392-6454 all right. I always warn people to give out their cell phone uh, numbers on right. the podcast. They get blown up, but that's okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have thought that one through. No, I, wel- I welcome the call. <laughs> Good. All that's right. great. Awesome. So, again, for those of you that didn't catch that, it was ElevatePaymentAlliance.com uh, and then 949-392-6454. Hawkins, thank you so much for your time and the great information. really appreciate it. Really insightful. Yeah, thank you, Hawkins. Thanks. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Okay, if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're good at selling, and you've either built or are are en route to building a profitable merchant portfolio. But chances are you're not attorneys trained in contract law. 
And that can be problematic since your fortunes in this business are tied to contracts you enter into with upstream partners, like ISOs and acquirers. Yeah, right? So as several uh, experts I interviewed for a recent Green Sheet article pointed out, agents and smaller ISOs implicitly trust their upstream partners. But those partners are in business to make money, and one of the ways they try to do that is through contracts that put them in a more advantageous position. Indeed. Uh, The article... um, Understanding the fine print uh, was published in the April 22nd issue of the Green Sheet, and it goes into a lot more detail than I'm able to go into today. But uh, so, if you don't get a hard copy of the Green Sheet, I'd suggest yeah, you go online. Definitely, I think it's uh, a really it was a really well done article, if I must say so myself. It was. I read it. <laughs> okay, I can vouch for you there. Oh, great. <laughs> So this week, I'd like to review some of the gotchas to watch out for when negotiating contracts with upstream processing partners. And next week, uh, James, you and I will follow up with another important consideration, exit strategies. Ah, yes. I know that's something that... uh, Near and dear to my heart. Near and dear to your heart. (laughs) Now, I have to preface this by saying I'm not a lawyer. And uh, if you you really want to know the legal ins and outs, you know, engage a a lawyer who understands contracts and merchant services. But here are seven considerations that I came up with uh, from the folks that I interviewed. Uh, You know, considerations when negotiating. Exclusivity clauses. Putting all your eggs in one processor's basket should be avoided. If they insist, they should make it worth your while financially. Well, that's such a good one. We have to we have to pause on that one for one second, right? Because that's so good. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think this is an interesting question I, because I would say, you know, over the years, I mean, if you would have asked me like ten years ago when I was first getting into the business and all mm-hmm. that, you know, should you have just one processing partner? I would have said, oh my word, no, you're crazy. Right. Like have at least three or four. Right? You know. Sure. Um, now, ah, the problem is there's been so many mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ISOs that really do have everything under one roof. Right. I think where you run into trouble with the exclusivity isn't as much any more that you're going to find a merchant you can't service because even what I'll tell you is most exclusivity contracts I've seen still have a first right of refusal Mm -hmm. so it's not true exclusivity like you can't sell merchant services for anybody else it's you got to bring us the deal first right but if we decline the deal or don't want to do the deal then you can take it to somebody else Mm -hmm. so I think you got to make sure you have that in there right but I think the real issue with it isn't even as much it used to be well I need multiple processors because this processor may not work with fuel stations right. or this one may not work at the grocery stores or whatever it's not really that anymore I mean mm-hmm. it is that but usually you can find a good company that do everything a couple companies that do everything it's more about the financial considerations yeah you know you don't want to put yourself in a position where you have no leverage mm-hmm. so I think you de- at the very least you want to be with a company for a while and make sure that they're doing what they said they were going to do right. and there's you know what I mean mm-hmm. so I think that's the big thing is otherwise you get ex- exclusive and then, you know, and the other thing too, I'll tell you is, like you mentioned, people aren't good with contracts, and that's so true. Uh, one of the most valuable books I ever read was actually I have about a 400-page book on business law. Mm-hmm. I read it when I was like 20. Uh huh. And you know, so I've, ever since then, I can write legal agreements and stuff. Right. And, and then, I, of course, I run it by my attorney. But yeah, of course. But but you know, when you look at these contracts, the problem is it's fine to say I'm exclusive as long as this is my compensation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, as long as you feel like it's a good deal. But to say, yep, I'm exclusive no matter what. And then there's another clause in the contract that says we can change your split from yeah. whatever to whatever. Right. Well, that's kind of a problem. Yeah. I mean, so there's to, some things to watch out for. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think I actually I actually get to that. So. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, non-solicitation clauses. You know, these can be deal breakers. After all, what if you have a merchant who becomes dissatisfied? I mean, sure. You know, that does happen. Uh, you know, maybe they, you know, the the process you're working with lacks specific technologies they need. Or worse, maybe the merchant had a bad experience with that processor and doesn't want to do it. Yeah. You know? So, you know, 
portability is something that's worth uh, fighting for or at least um, considering. See, I don't know. That's a tough one. I mean, is it? would it be great to have that? Yes. Is an individual agent going to get that? No. no. I've, I've never seen an individual agent contract that did not have a non-solicitation clause in it. Meaning, and just let's be clear what that is because people may not know. Sure, sure. What that means is that, that governs, like, once you sell a merchant for this company, how long do you have to wait before you could steal that merchant or flip that merchant to somebody else? Right, right. Most non-solicitation clauses that I've seen are either three years, five years, or forever as long as you're getting paid residual. Um, now, what what's interesting is the way you not get around that, but the way that it's a natural kind of evolution of things is that let's say a merchant wants something that your ISO doesn't provide. Mm -hmm. If they reach out of their own accord and cancel their services, uh -huh. right? Right. Because they really didn't get what they wanted. Right. Well, then a lot of times not solicitation clause now becomes null and void because it's no longer their merchant. So now, you know, uh -huh. you reach out a month later and move them to somebody else. Then you, you can know. move them to somebody and else. That's kind of that's accepted practice yeah. in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, but I think for the individual agent, they're not going to get portability, meaning you can just move your portfolio to somebody else and they're not going to get, you know, they're, they're not going to remove the non-solicitation clauses. I think where that comes into play is more you're going to build a big ISO. How locked down do you want to be right. to right. the current company that you're with? Yeah, especially so. if you're trying to build value. Build, and, yeah, yeah right. sure. Okay, so again, value, residual stream ownership and verifiability. Well, that's a big one. Everybody that's, should have that. You know, uh, you know, contracts should state clearly that the agent shares in all revenues derived from a merchant they sign. You know, be wary of provisions stating the residual cuts can be reduced or eliminated, you know, say if totals fall below an established minimum or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, anything in a contract that says the residual stream can be cut off should be open for negotiation, and yeah. it should be negotiated. Absolutely. Uh, also, consider contract language that requires residual reporting and lays out steps for verifying. Yeah, really. You know, I mean, that, I mean, how many horror stories have we heard over the years? Oh, my, so many. So many. <laughs> uh, number four, limited liability and indemnity. Now, again, this gets into the legalese stuff, but, you know, basically. It's important, though. Yeah, very important. And limited liability clauses, as the term implies, limit the liability of one party in a contract. You know, large ISOs and processors will always so seek to limit their liabilities, but under no circumstances should this affect residuals. Indemnity clauses allow one party in a contract to sue another for monetary damages, even if the purported harm was the fault of a third party, say the merchant. These should be limited to direct damages, though, um, like out-of-pocket costs, and not inclusive of special damages like loss of profit. Well, yeah, and I think uh, another really good example of that, there's an agent I know uh, that I uh, know really well, actually, and he had a merchant where, you know, he had a good size portfolio is bringing in you know eighteen thousand a month in residual mm -hmm. and he had one merchant who uh was fraudulent and he didn't know that he signed him up over the phone right they were fraudulent and it ended up costing the iso and fraudulent transaction dollars that they actually they, they were that they got stuck with they got stuck with and they got stuck with if memory serves it was somewhere between ten to twenty thousand dollars wow um well they ended up taking that out of his residual Oof. You know, and so you're like, uh, and he was going, what in the world? Well, then he had an attorney get involved. Sure enough, in his agreement, mm -hmm. it stated that, you know, any money that the, the ISO lost as a result of this account, right? whoa, you know, so you got to be careful what you're, you really have you to know. be careful of that. I mean, that's, and, that, and those are the kind of sticky little points right. that the average bloke like you or I right. aren't necessarily going to be aware of. Sure. So responsibility for setting and or changing merchant fees. You know, obviously fee setting is the processor's prerogative, 
but as the merchant-facing rep, you can request written assurances that rates won't be changed or new fees added without some sort of advance notice. Yeah, and I think the industry standard there has kind of become notification and uh, exclusion. You're right. So and, you're and like, it, hey, we're going to do this price increase. If you want to exclude any of your merchants, send us the ones you want to exclude, and we'll exclude them. Right, right. That's and and and, and you know, and you know, thirty, sixty days, you yeah. know, to to be able to do that sure. is reasonable. Yeah, of course. Right. Uh, responsibility for merchant fraud and data breaches. Now, this isn't generally an issue as most ISOs and MLSs have no risk agreements. But make sure you know seek. You know, seek out written assurances that you're not going to be held liable for frauds or breaches involving the merchants you sign. Sure, just like the example I just gave. You know, that's that, a perfect example. So yeah. where where this really comes in is when you are signed direct mm-hmm. with a processor, with an acquirer, really, right. uh, not just an ISO. Right. So the idea is uh, what Patty's saying. Of course, is most ISOs don't they they sign agreements with the you know maybe they're direct with TSIS and they'll sign something with TSIS that mm-hmm. says, well, we're you know we're direct, but we don't take on any risk. If there's fraud, that's on them. Right. Tesis in turn is making a profit to offset their risk, but they can they have such a huge pool, they can afford to take that risk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, if if your ISO is taking that risk, then that means you might be taking that risk. Yeah, exactly. That can get a little scary. And that can get scary. And uh the, the last thing, the number 7 is termination provisions. You know, termination clauses can have a profound impact on your success. And I and we'll talk more about this next week uh, sure. when we discuss exit plans, but here's the important thing to remember. Reasons for termination should be clearly stated, and you should be given several months' advance notice of any termination plan. Yes, and even I would say even more important than that, the residual clauses in your contract mm-hmm. should survive termination. Right, right. If it does not specifically state that, and that's what people don't realize, they'll look at it and go, uh, I mean, goodness, there's so many stories I'm thinking in my head here, but yeah, yeah. I've had so many calls, you know. And I've this. heard them too, sure. Yeah, you know, but like a really common one is, you know, something, something legitimate happens. Happen. I mean, I've, I've actually had salespeople call me and say, look, you know, I committed a crime. I declared bankruptcy. I you know, did something that in the agreement gave the processor legitimate cause to mm-hmm. terminate the agreement. Mm-hmm. They did something even fraudulent. I mean that that you know that sure, so sure. but but when that happens, what they don't realize is that if they terminate the agreement, that's one thing. But if there's not something specific in the agreement that says this part of the agreement that talks about getting paid residual survives termination, right? Then if they terminate the agreement, you're done. Mm-hmm. You'd never get another penny. And again, that goes back to the residual ownership. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So wow, really, uh, really, really good stuff. And you know, I think too, another big takeaway, Patty, is like, you know, it's funny because we were just talking to Hawkins about. Uh, information paralysis. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that what I always tell uh, agents is this, you know, especially when you're first getting into the industry, you know, you're not going to understand all this. You may not be able to afford an attorney. So make sure of two things. Make sure you're not exclusive and make sure you own your residuals. Yeah. If you do those two things. Then you're okay. You'll be okay. You yeah. might have some problems, but right. you'll at least have some money coming in. Right. Then go start selling. Then once you make like a thousand a month, two thousand a month in residual, mm-hmm. get an attorney to look over your agreement. Right. And if you don't like it, you're not exclusive. So you can go back in and say, I'm gonna, I'm about to be done with you guys. Mm-hmm. And you still own your residuals no matter what, and you're not exclusive. So it's like as long as those two building blocks are there, go make some money and yeah. then leverage your money to get better attorneys. Because when you get to a higher level, you'll find out that usually whoever has the best attorney usually seems to win. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, and attorneys are, are it's really simple to have the best attorney. It's the most expensive one. It's, it's simple, but it's costly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So you got to go make money and then that's your leverage. You know, and, and I'll tell you the other thing too, Patty, is it's like, 
you also can't look at these things in a vacuum either because it's like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe somebody listens to this and says, you know what, I, I agree, I need to go renegotiate my contract. Okay, how many sales did you make the last three months? Mm-hmm. Well, I made two per month the last three months. Well, maybe you won't have too much leverage, yeah. right? Your processor yeah. is going to tell you to go pound sand. They don't right. care about you. Yeah. You stink. Right. <laughs> but if you're really good at what yeah. you do, if you did 12 sales a month each of the last three, then you have to start having clout. Right. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to say, yeah, let's fly you out here and put you up in a hotel and let's come in and talk face to face and let's work out our differences. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they want your deal. So, you know, at the end of the day, contracts are really, you know, all about your leverage. How much money do you have mm-hmm. and how many sales are you making? And at the end of the day, that's really going to determine your contract. And, yeah. <laughs> I mean, those are your building blocks of success, right. really. Right. Yeah. So awesome. Great stuff, Patty. Really, really helpful. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Well, here we are with questions from the field. I'm going to be talking to you today about surcharging. Mm-hmm. So we've been going over pricing structures, obviously. Right. Uh, I've talked about all the the uh, normal ones. Last week, I did an introduction to kind of this concept of passing the cost on to the consumer. This week, we're going to talk specifically about surcharging. Okay. So surcharging of all the ones we've talked about is by far the most complex to discuss. It is. And there are several reasons for that. Um, the first reason is that there are actually regulations and compliance rules that relate to surcharging. Mm-hmm. So I want to start off today by going through these and I'll, I'll give a little shout out to Cardex because I'm on their website. I pulled noticed up. you're on their website. I uh-huh. am. Um, we've had Jonathan Rossi on here many yeah, times and, right. and you know, there's no secret that they've really established themselves as a leader in this area. Yeah. Um, and they have a compliance section where they have the rules here. So I'm going to just go through these rules real quick and, uh, and just read through them. So number one rule is that the merchant must be registered with the card brand, meaning the merchant has to let Visa and MasterCard know that they are going to surcharge. Right. Um, now, uh, what's interesting is different ISOs have actually worked out different agreements with the card brands. Mm-hmm. Some of them can actually set the, set the merchant up register kind of on their behalf right. with their permission and then immediately the merchant can start surcharging. Okay. Other ISOs haven't negotiated those sweetheart deals and so there's maybe a 30-day 30 30 waiting day. period, right. you right. know. But, you know, no matter where, where that ends up, you definitely have to register with the with the card brands. Um the merchant must inform their customers of the credit card fee with appropriate signage at the store entrance if applicable and at the point of sale. Now, I am actually going to uh, you know, augment this a little bit because that that actually would not be correct in the state of New York. So let's take New York out of it for just a second. Mm-hmm. In all of the other states where there's not a surcharge ban, you know, right. on record, right? Uh, in all of those other states, yeah, you just have to have a sign at the door. So like when people walk in, there has to be a sign. If you have a website like an e-commerce merchant, there should be a notice on the homepage of the mm-hmm. website, which is kind of like your door, right? But then you also have to have a sign uh, posted 
at the counter, um, you know, or and or if you're an online merchant e-commerce on in the checkout page. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So, uh, you know, the signage. Now, the interesting thing is with surcharging, there isn't very much guidance. Uh, they, If you go to Visa MasterCard, they have like a, a website for this if you Google it. And they do actually have uh, example signs. Right. But, you know, they, they're not real stringent about it. It's like just you got to let them know what you're doing, you right. know. Right. And so with surcharging. It can, be, it can be a handwritten sign as long as it tells yeah. them what you're doing. Absolutely. And, and with surcharging. It is actually pretty simple mm-hmm. uh, with this, and you know, unlike we'll talk about cash discounting next week, where it gets a lot more complicated with the signs. But you just got to let them know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the state of New York, uh, the very different there. The law there basically is the the consumer should never have to make any kind of a calculation. Right. So what that means is for them, uh, no calculation whatsoever. So you couldn't have something like we're adding 3.5 percent. It would have to be the cash price is this is you know a hundred dollars, and the credit price is. One hundred three fifty. So you know you have to do that really specifically. So that works okay for e-commerce if you make certain ch- adjustments, but not so much for retail. Right. A little bit, uh, especially you know. retail with a large selection of right products. Right. Uh, the amount of the fee that you're charging cannot be higher than four percent. So uh, it's a pretty pretty standard one. I do think it's funny that they did that because uh, obviously if you're like a coffee shop, your interchange cost is like five and a half percent, right? Because right. of the Durban Amendment, twenty two well, cent fee. But isn't the thing also it's like five four percent uh, or the cost of your, your actual cost of your processing? Yeah, I can't. You can't charge them. You know, you can't charge the consumer more than what they're paying for processing. More than what they're paying. Yeah. Right. And so I mean that really is kind of a moot point because in our our industry everybody just does flat rate pricing, which I'll talk more about in a minute. Right. So they always kind of match up. Um, but uh, it is funny. It is one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of agents ask me, well, James, you know, how do I explain to a merchant that's already doing their own program that it's not compliant and that they need to go with me? Mm-hmm. The two things I always tell them is I say, number one reason is they're almost always surcharging debit. Right. which is not compliant, right? Uh, signature debit, you know, um, or and or the other thing they're usually doing is they have maybe a 3.5% or I saw one just yesterday, I was at a flower shop mm-hmm. and they had a $2, anything below 20 bucks, they charge a $2 fee. Whoa, that's like over 10%. It's over 10% and I am their credit card processor. <laughs> so Ooh. I know exactly how much they're paying and uh-huh. so I explained to the owner who's like I think 93 years old uh, <laughs> why this was not compliant. I made no progress. I have to try again. But, you know, uh, you know, the idea is that's not compliant because she's, you know, they're charging more than they are getting charged. Right. And you have right. to make sure those numbers match up. So, um Next, the credit card fee and the price of the product or service must be processed together as one transaction. Um Ironically, I've seen a few ISOs do this the wrong way and really get themselves into some hot water. It's really stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you just you got to process these things together. You don't want to submit them as two different things. It's two different transactions. Yeah, process right. them separate. Um, the receipt has to show the amount of the fee as a separate line item. Again, mm. New York excluded. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is in New York, it would be the opposite. In New York, it has to all be together as one because it's the credit price or the cash price. Right, right. So it just has to have it there. So ironically there, the receipt would be different. But yeah, for most states, you just have to show it on the receipt uh, as a separate line item. So you got to run it as one transaction through the terminal, mm-hmm. but it has to be listed as a separate line item like you would like sales tax or something like right, that. Right, right. Um, and then lastly here, the merchant must not apply the fee 
fee to debit cards. It just says debit here, but actually it's uh, signature debit, pin debit, or prepaid. Or prepaid, right. Right, so you can't apply it to any of those. Uh, somebody on LinkedIn, actually, I didn't even know that about prepaid until like two weeks ago. Oh, yeah, and yeah, because it's a debit card. I didn't think of it that way. And then somebody yeah. on LinkedIn, uh, I posted a video, and they made a comment and said, hey, what about this? And so I dug into it, and sure enough, yeah, so yeah, yeah. no prepaid either. So, um, and again, that goes back to why a lot of the programs are not compliant to the merchants are doing. A lot of it is because, you know, unless they have a terminal set up to identify the card type, they're not going to know if it's a prepaid card or a mm-hmm. debit card or mm-hmm. anything like that. Well, you know, and that's the in- interesting thing, too, I think, James, is that that's why you really need a partner to do something like surcharging. Of course. Because, the you know, like, like you said, New York is different than everybody else. We right. still have, what is it, a half dozen states where technically it's illegal. Uh, yeah, is that I right? I think it's down to five now. Is isn't it down it? to five? Yeah, let's see here. Let's so see, we got, got one, one two, two, three. Well, really, it's one, two, three, four, five. Right. But then there's Maine and New York are the ones that still have really stringent laws that. Right. Yeah. That kind of. So you could yeah. say either five or seven, I guess. Yeah. Pay. So yeah. let's say six because it's right in right, between. Right. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, but you know, I mean, you, that's why you need, um, you know, partners because. Yeah. Shoot. I mean, here in Pennsylvania or in Maryland, it's one thing. You yep. go go from Pennsylvania up to New York, you have a whole lot of different rules. Yeah. And if you're dealing with merchants, particularly regional merchants, mm-hmm. um, you got yeah. you got to, you know, understand the difference. And it was really funny the other day I had, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who has a team down in Florida uh-huh. and it's really funny if you read the laws in Florida, they actually, I would actually say in Florida, cash discounting, it, even the way it's done in the industry right now is actually more compliant than surcharging there. It's really funny because mm-hmm. they still have a surcharge ban on the books. Right. It got struck down as unconstitutional and then but they changed still... some things, but it's like really, but right. they're they're like all like they're all about the cash discount. It's mm-hmm. really funny. So every state is definitely Yeah, when I was different. down in Florida last time, I was amazed at how much cash discounting I saw. Yeah. 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 Well, a lot of that's because of my friend that I'm talking about. So. Probably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's good about probably 80 agents down there selling cash discount uh-huh. only. So. Yeah, they're doing well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so that's kind of the first part of it is this compliance. Now, the second part of it is the price. And we're going to talk about three things, compliance, pricing, and residual. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have compliance. Let's talk about pricing. So pricing for surcharging is there are two parts to pricing. The first thing is the credit card transactions that you're surcharging. Mm-hmm. So the way you normally want to do that is you want to have the surcharge amount so let's say it's, you know, 3.5% or whatever, right? Right. Then you want to have the flat rate. So you are charging them a flat rate on credit uh, right, card transactions. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where it gets tricky because that flat rate actually can't match up with the credit card with the surcharge amount though. So what I mean by that is, uh, let's yeah, say we sure. have a $100 transaction, we're going to add 3.5%, we're at 10350. Mm-hmm. Well, if you take 3.5% of 10350, it's like $3.64 or something. Right. It's actually in that case it'd be 3.834%. So the idea is you do have to have a little bit of a different number. And uh-huh. the way I tell people to figure it out is just look at a $100 transaction. Okay. So you take, you know, so in this case, let's say it's 3.5%. We would just take 100 plus, you know, 3.5% is 103.50. Right. So take $3.50 divided by 103.50, and you'll come up with your number that you need to have your flat rate. Oh. Because okay. that's what you got to pull out. That's got to be your flat rate because you want the dollar amounts to match, not the percentages to match. Sure, sure. Yeah. But you're still, I mean, and this is the thing that always gets me about surcharging. Yeah. You still have to be able to discern the difference. 
between Why? the debit and the credit. Well, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. sure. That's what I'm, no, that's what I mean. Got it, got it, got That's it. where it just gets a little and, more and, you complex. Know, but, but you know what's interesting, though, really? Most merchant applications for a long time have already had that. Okay. They've already had the ability to say, when you do your pricing thing, to say, charge this for debit, you know, for, for check card, and then charge this for credit. Okay. You know, so you just got to make sure. It, it, the funny thing is, people haven't used it very much. Right. But it's always been there. Okay. It just hasn't been used that much. So you can definitely do that. Like, I'll give you an example. Um, You know, four-tier pricing or split rate pricing, that's been around mm-hmm. forever. Sure. Where you have one qualified rate for credit and then one qualified rate for check card. Sure, sure. So right. it's that same concept, okay. really, is all you're doing. Okay. So, so in this case, though, you have your flat rate for credit. Um, and again, that rate is going to be determined by taking the dollar amounts. You know, you want to get that dollar amount, not the percentages to match. You want the dollar amount to match. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Then you need to have your daily discount right. Right, right. to also match that uh, that amount. Okay. Now this is actually the part of sur- the, this is the only thing about surcharging that is actually not th- this. What I'm about to tell you, this is why most ISOs do not currently offer surcharging. Okay. Because if you really want to do it right and to make it, you know, where the merchant understands it, you only are collecting the daily discount on the credit transactions. Because if you collect 3.8% on right. everything, you're going to be collecting way more than you should because mm-hmm. you're that's not what you're charging on debit. Right, sure. So that's where partners come in, software vendors, Cardex, uh, many others, like a lot of companies now that are doing surcharging. Right. Um, PaySafe's doing it, you know. So there's different companies doing it, but the idea is you definitely have to make sure that you're only pulling out the money from the credit card transactions. Mm-hmm. Daily discounts. So for a long time, you've been able to price debit different than credit. Right. But the idea of a daily discount only applying to one particular card type. That makes it much more complex. That's, I mean, it's, just, it's not that it's that much more complex, it's just nobody has that. Right. You know what I mean? And so it's something you got to add in there. And so. also just sort of noodling it through is like for ex- right. in terms of explaining it to the merchant, I, that's right. where it becomes a real hairy. Sure. Well, so the the other thing there is then your daily discount should be the same as your fee amount. You're okay. charging three point eight three percent or whatever, right. and you're collecting three point eight three percent. You know, mm-hmm. um, because again, you want to charge them, you want to charge them that three fifty, and you got to collect that three fifty. Right. You know, so the dollar amounts have to match all the way across. Mm-hmm. So again, if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around it, just look at a hundred dollar transaction. Whatever the surcharge is, you need to charge them that much as a fee in the dollar amount, and you need to grab that much in the daily discount. Right. Right. So, so we have that for credit. Then for signature debit. I have seen all kinds of things. I've seen companies do it where it's like interchange plus pricing on debit. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've seen most commonly is actually flat rate, though. So what I've seen is a lot of companies doing 1% and $0.25 cents right. on debit. Okay. And that's something that the merchant has to pay because right. they're not collecting a surcharge for that. Right. So your signature debit, and you can even lump your signature and your pin debit together mm-hmm. and charge you know, either a flat rate, maybe you charge them a flat you know, 1.5% and no per item, but not charging a per item on debit is always a little scary because of the Durban Amendment. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just never know what kind of size transactions you're going to deal with. So I like to just do you know, a flat percentage plus a small per item fee to cover that. Right. Uh, to cover that. And again, if you do that, in most situations, the merchant's still going to be saving 30%, 40% anyway, mm-hmm. um, just because they're not paying for the credit transactions. Sure. So you're making really good margins on the credit card and you're you're making less but still some margin on the on the signature debit. Mm-hmm. So last thing we want to talk about is moving right into margin, which is you know the residual. So when you do it that way, the idea is you're going to make really good margin on the credit card transaction. So 
if a business does a lower percentage of debit, they do a lot of credit transactions. Generally speaking, those are the best accounts for surcharging because it's going to save the merchant more money mm-hmm. and because you're going to make more money. Right. Because you're marking up the credit card a lot higher than you are the signature debit. Mm-hmm. Uh, businesses that have a lot of small ticket transactions are usually the worst. That's what I would think, yeah. Because, you know, you can't surcharge very much because they're doing lots of debit. And when mm-hmm. you do, your margins are really low. Right. You're probably not able to save them very much money. So the the... The more the higher volume of you know lower tickets, like they do lots, you know it's a like a coffee shop for coffee example. shop. Yeah, you know right. you get a, a six location coffee shop. Forget about it. Yeah, surcharging yeah. is not a good idea there, um, and because it's gonna you know they are gonna get a little bit of blowback, and it's just not worth it because they're not gonna save hardly anything sure. um, for you to keep your your margins up. Yeah, I would imagine. So there you go. That's surcharging. Um, surcharging again can be very very profitable. Again, it's compliance as we mentioned in all but five to seven states, depending on how you want to look at it. Right. Um, and so it's uh, you know it's a great program for sure. A little bit harder to set up just because you got to collect that money in, mm-hmm. um, you know. But it can be very profitable and it can save the merchant a lot of money. Um, and so that's surcharging. Next week we're going to talk about cash discounting. Okay. Simpler setup, but some other concerns that really don't have an issue with surcharging that we're going to talk about next yeah, week. Yeah, there's both pros and cons on both sides. There is. So really looking forward to it. Next week we'll talk about cash discounting and Good that's stuff, all I got James. today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.